I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this, that's the plan. Hey, how you doing, listeners? Oh, it's a nice evening. Sun's going down. Hey, Rosie. Come over here. Oh, it's nice to see you, Dog Dog. What are you up to? I'm a special dog. I've got skills. I'm sniffing around like I'm a special detective dog. And sometimes I raise my left or right paw like I'm pointing at clues because I'm important. What do you think of the sunset, Rosie? It's nice, isn't it? You know what they say? Red sky at night, gods had a fight. Rain in the morning, liquid while yawning. I mean, there's lots of country sayings. But anyway, you go off and do your uh, detective work. I'll tell the listeners about today's podcast. Podcast number 37, which I'm excited to say, features a conversation with someone whose work I've enjoyed in all its forms since I was about 12. That is a long, a long time. Artist, musician, producer, and polymath, Brian Eno. I had two relatively short sessions with Brian, who unsurprisingly turns out to be really quite busy. They both took place at his studio, which is in West London. And the first one was in October of last year, 2016. That's what you'll be hearing in this first part. And the second was recorded in February of this year, 2017. And if you're subscribed to this podcast, I'm glad to say that it should have already plopped into your device. You're welcome. So, Brian Eno. I got into his music as a young teen after listening to his late 70s work, the collaborations with David Bowie on Low, Heroes and Lodger, the so-called Berlin trilogy, and loved those. I explored pretty much everything Eno had done thereafter, and it was a very enjoyable journey and has been ever since. I blazed through all his solo albums over a few months, getting particularly hooked on 1975's Another Green World, which to me is like Eno's hunky-dory. If you're a Bowie fan, it'll mean something to you. Though, of course, that album, Another Green World, ended up being more of a blueprint for Bowie and Eno's first collaboration, Low, as well as the odd songs with their weird lyrics on Another Green World. You've got Eno's instrumental mood pieces, and I hadn't really heard music like that before at that point. And they prepared me for those wordless ambient records from Eno, like uh, music for films and Apollo with Daniel Lanois and uh, Roger Eno, The Pearl with Harold Budd, records that I rely on to this day whenever I require otherworldly mood balm. A balm? And then there were the records that Eno produced for Talking Heads at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, especially Remain in Light, and uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts that he did just with David Byrne. 
those are two of the records that I've probably listened to most in my life and, and continue to give me great, great joy to this day. Uh, as far as Eno's concerned, in the 90s and noughties, of course, he embarked on hugely successful collaborations with U2 and Coldplay, to name but two of the bands he worked with, as well as continuing to make and exhibit art pieces that often feature the randomised interplay of colourful light patterns. I arrived at my first meeting with Eno, armed with some cards that I'd printed out as a kind of homage to his famous oblique strategy cards that he created with his artist friend Peter Schmidt. And the oblique strategy cards, for those of you not familiar, feature gnomic pronouncements or instructions that you can pick at random from the deck and you read them out and they are designed to help artists think differently about the creative process when you're in a bit of a rut. My cards were like postcards and they were printouts of um, the kind of colourful patterns that you sometimes see when video files get corrupted on a computer. Compression artefacts. And on the other side of each postcard I printed out phrases that I hoped might serve as a jumping off point for conversation. And I would now and then invite Eno to pick one at random. Oh, I overthought the whole thing, didn't I? I was thinking, oh, Eno's going to love this. He's got, oh, he's going to want to collaborate with me on a series of installations inspired by the cards. He's going to ask if he can use some of the images as album art. I'm still waiting for him to get in touch about all that. I might try and put a few of the images up on my website, just so you can see the kind of thing I'm talking about. But basically, the, the cards were a response to something that he'd said in an email before we met about not wanting to focus on those parts of his career that he'd been asked about so many times before. I think he'd uh, just got a bit sick of interviews going the same way and covering the same ground over and over again. Fair enough. I actually abandoned the cards for our second meeting. And oddly, we ended up talking much more about the past. Even some of the more obvious bits that he's probably spoken about quite a few times. Um, although he had some very interesting things to say about my life in the bush of ghosts that I hadn't heard him talk about before. Anyway, that's in part two. But this first conversation is, well, just that, really. It's just a a chat with an interesting man. Not about his career, really. Just about things. Brian Eno. Here we go. sat in Brian's studio in London and what I've done is printed out some bullet point, not questions exactly, but headings that maybe will spark off bits of conversation. I've got questions attached to some of these, but I'm interested in mm -hmm. wherever they send you. 
So um, see what happens with the first card. Well, funnily enough, it reminds me of a picture I took in Lowestoft about four weeks ago. Oh, yeah. I took a picture of the beach and it was very crowded and it looked like that with all the little umbrellas and wind screens and so on. Yes. You're a Suffolk guy, is that...? Well, yes, I am, yeah, Mm. yeah. You still have a place out there, do you? I have a place in Norfolk. Okay. Um, Well, in fact, just... It's about 200 metres out of Suffolk. It's yeah. just over the border. Right. It's funny, I, um, I bought this little house there about three years ago now, and uh, I like going there, but I always love it when I get off the, the tube at Ladbroke Grove yeah. and I come <laughs> home again. I realise, though I grew up in the country, I really feel home in the city now. Yeah. You know, it's always a question of trying to get the balance you like between nature and culture. Uh-huh. And... There's a bit too much nature out there for me (laughs) in the mix. I can take it for a few weeks, but then I'm dying to see... I think it's particularly to see different people. What's so nice when I got off the train at Notting Hill is just suddenly there's all these other faces, you know. Yeah. And suddenly I feel like I'm in the 21st century. Quite sexy faces in Notting Hill as well. Oh, yes. Oh, no, don't about that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a good mix of all the um, sexiest people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's why I live there. Yeah. You know. How long have you been around this part of the world in London? Practically all the time I've lived in London. Oh, yeah. So I, I moved to London in 1969, and for about a year I lived in Camberwell. Okay. And then I came to West London. So really for 40, 46 years, is it? Yeah. 45 years, something like that. Don't miss South London. That's where I grew up. I liked it there, but I don't miss it. No. Well, you've kind of got everything around here, haven't you? Good mix of all different social strata. Yeah. And um, Though that mix cultures. is changing quite dramatically um, to there being only one social strata now. Right. The very wealthy. Yeah, yeah. Especially here. This, this little muse here, I've had this studio for 21 years now. And when I moved in, it was all bohemians. Mm-hmm. Um, painters and sculptors and designers and just general hangabouts you know and now it's nearly all bankers oh right people who work for goldman sachs i guess all the creative people have buggered off east haven't they yeah nobody can afford to live here yeah i mean if if you owned a place in this muse and you sold it you could buy a street in east london a few years ago so that's what a lot of people did yeah you got in at the right moment i was so lucky very interesting story about this place. Well, uh-huh. It was my um, accountant who said, are you still looking for a studio? He knew I was looking for one. I said, yes. He said, get on your bike and go immediately to this address. I cycled here. And I bought it on the spot. The, guy, the architect who was working here was very anxious to move. And the reason he was very anxious to move was because he'd just got the most extraordinary job. He was... a very small business. His biggest job until that time had been doing... He'd reconditioned four bungalows in Ibiza. Uh That was the biggest job he'd had. And one of the jobs he'd done was he'd done a kitchen for an Indian man. And the Indian man turned up and said, "Um, do you remember you did that kitchen for me? And the architect thought, oh, no, God, what's gone wrong? And the man said, do you think you could build a temple And he gave him this job, which is the biggest Sikh temple outside of India. Right. 
which he built. Wow. So suddenly, from being this tiny little business, he went to this huge business. And while he was doing the temple, a Nigerian man came in and said, um, could you do a mosque? So he suddenly got this huge mosque job in Nigeria. So suddenly he needed hundreds of other people working for him. Yeah. So he's very anxious just to move on from here. What was it about the kitchen that he built? <laughs> it must have been really good. It must have been amazing. Everyone <laughs> coming around, praying. And... want to try another card okay let me just i think this is a rather attractive one how to annoy brian eno <laughs> you seem someone who's pretty um even-tempered sanguine from the outside looking mm -hmm. in so i'm curious to know what sort of things on a personal level make you irritable Quite a few. I tell, I'll, I'll give you an example of something I saw, one of the few times I've seen you clearly peeved, and that's on a YouTube clip, and it's you in a gallery somewhere, and there's a fellow filming you. I don't know if he's doing something official mm -hmm. or what, but, you, you know, you're going in, you're talking to someone else, you sit down at a table all the time this guy's filming you, and eventually you just say, hey, give me your camera, and uh, I'll film you for a bit. You see how you like it. Was that recent? Uh, yeah, five years or something. Okay, I have to look at that. And the guy's very cagey and he's like, oh, no, it's okay, I'm filming you, it's fine. And you're like, no, no, be, let me film you for a bit. And it, it feels weird being filmed all the time, so I'll just give you a taste of that. Mm. Um, and you do it in a very pleasant way, but I felt like you were probably kind of pissed off. I do get pissed off, yeah. I, I think that... Um not respecting somebody else's conversation is very rude. Uh -huh. And that quite often happens, I think, when, when I'm in a public place. I mean, I, I don't get that much hassle. I shouldn't, I'm not complaining about it that much. But occasionally, um, if I've given a talk, for example, and after the talk, I'm having a conversation with somebody, and I'm clearly into the conversation, and somebody else just walks right in between with their back to the person who's talking to me. Right. And kind of takes over the conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I think, how rude do you have to be to do that? Yeah. Because the, the problem is that there's a sort of reverse filter working, which is that after any kind of event where a lot of people have seen you, it's the pushy ones who actually get to talk to you generally. Um, and the ones you can see, the kind of interesting-looking people with sympathetic faces just are much too well-mannered to push their way through. So they're all at the back of the crowd there, and you sort of, you sort of want to say, you, six rows back, could you, do you mind coming forward? That's right. So, so that, that's an annoyance, and I, I think that's the only thing that really gets to me a lot. That kind of rudeness. Well, on a personal level, you know, I mean, obviously there are things I'm... Global things. Global yeah. things, like I'm incredibly annoyed by... Boris Johnson, for example. Mm -hmm. I know. Gliding from one 
plumb spot to the next, seemingly indestructible. Prime shit stirrer. Yeah. You know, I, I was following him from the sort of 90s onwards in seeing the poisonous stuff he was writing from Brussels when he was the, e, the European correspondent mm-hmm. for, for The Times, I think it was, or The Telegraph, sorry. And I just thought, this is awful what this guy's writing. He's just making most of it up anyway. And it's just designed to cause trouble. It's just designed to make people feel annoyed and for whatever particular agenda he has. And then he's bloody foreign secretary, you know. That, that is really disgusting. It's a shame. I think the other thing that is taking hold in the world now as well is that um, people who are decisive, pushy, pushy and decisive, mm-hmm. because decisiveness mm-hmm. has always been regarded as, yeah. a, a, as a positive yeah. attribute yeah. You know, power, especially in politics. If you're not decisive, you're seen as weak, yeah. as a liability. Flip-flopper. Yeah. U-turner. Right. <laughs> and so anyone who comes out and makes a virtue of being obnoxious but decisive, mm. Trump being the obvious mm-hmm. example at the moment, yeah. suddenly accrues all this uh, respect and admiration. Yes, well, I think what those people are selling, and you can understand why it's popular, what they're selling beyond anything else is simplicity. So they're saying, look, ignore all those idiots in Whitehall or the White House who make it all look so complicated. It's easy. All we've got to do is this, and they come up with some simple formula, which sounds sort of, yeah, feasible. Okay, we're we're losing our jobs. And there are lots of foreigners. It must be the foreigners taking the jobs. You know, the equation kind of makes sense at the first blush, you know, until you realise that, in fact, it's automation and it's companies outsourcing stuff to other countries and so on and so on, that are losing jobs as much as anything else. This is what Johnson thrived on and this is what actually most of the Tory politicians have thrived on, the idea that it's simple. All we have to do is austerity. All we have to do is this or that. And I'm just longing for some politicians who say, do you know, it's not simple at all. It's a fucking mess. And we're going to have to improvise our way through it. And that means we're going to have to change direction Mm -hmm. several times. Right. We're going to sometimes have to say, okay, this isn't working. Let's try something else. Yeah. And to say, all right, listen, we got it wrong. And I'm sorry. And just to have people admit that they don't know, but they're going to do their best. But it's hard to vote for those people, isn't it? Because it seems like more of a gamble. Well, I remember this great quote about democracy that I wish I could... I can never remember the name of the man who said his name, something like Charles Stettelheimer, mm-hmm. something like that. And he said, um, democracy is a system of government for people who are not certain that they're right. Mm-hmm. So if you're certain you're right, you don't need democracy. You don't need the input of the people. Yeah, you because... You just do your programme. Right, you do your patriarchal yeah. thing and say, look, I'll sort I, it I out. I know how it works, I'll sort it out. Yeah. But when you're not sure, when you need to draw on the intelligence and talents of other people, that's what we call democracy, you know. And so I think it's, it's really paradoxical that all of the media, almost without exception drive people towards a certainty that can't possibly be real, that they can't possibly support. I remember when I first moved to America in 1978, um, Carter was still in power then. Mm -hmm. And I always liked Carter. 
And one reason I liked him was because he didn't project that kind of certainty. But, you know, it was very interesting. In America, that made him equally unpopular with conservatives and liberals. The liberals also wanted John Wayne. They just wanted their version of John Wayne, you know, the liberal version of John Wayne. Mm. The guy who doesn't load his gun but still strides into town. But the, the fact that Carter showed some sort of human vulnerability and also the ability to change his mind made him look terrible. And the American press, of all colours, just um, dismissed him for that. Dismissed him as a sort of simpleton, peanut farmer. Yeah, that's And that right. was how he was characterised. That's right. Yeah. And, and in fact, most Americans still do talk about Carter in that way. Mm. He hasn't been kind of rescued by the rosy glow of history yet. Carter is still the, the weed. Let's do another card. Okay. Are you okay with this system? Yes, it's fine. I just um, I think I'll go for that one, which says choice equals freedom. Mm, freedom's such a big word these days. <laughs> That's freedom is the word that, of course, both Brexit and uh, Trump are predicated on. The idea that something oppressive is holding you down. The EU or government in general. You know, the whole Trump thing is that government is a sort of intrinsic... He's kind of a libertarian, really, Trump. He's an authoritarian libertarian in that he he's sort of anti-government unless it's him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also called being a dictator. <laughs> he's, he's, a natural, he's a natural dictator. So the, the idea that there is something called freedom that politics can give us or can take away from us is the question here. There's a book by Richard Rorty, the philosopher, which is called Look After Freedom and the Truth Will Look After Itself, which I always like. So he's saying that if with genuine freedom, there is much less discussion about what the truth is because there's much less investment in one particular version of it being um, peddled. The truth, so as, as we like to refer to it, is, is a temporary agreement between people. Mm-hmm. It's a consensus, you know. We, we reach an agreement about what this reality is and then gradually we change it. Again, that's, an, that's a very unconservative idea because the history of Western philosophy until the 20th century anyway was the idea that there is such a thing as the truth. Immutable. Immutable and separate from us. It's nothing to do with us actually. But we can, by scratching away at logic and so on, we can find it. Whereas what, um, what people like Rorty says, that if you create a situation in which people can do whatever scratching they want, um, so that kind of freedom, your freedom to scratch wherever you want, <laughs> <laughs> then people will probably arrive at some kind of consensus about what reality is. I mean, science is a, is a very good example. Science is... Um, is a very free system in a certain way. And it's free of something very important. It's free of ideology. 
So the idea of science is that if you're a, you know, an Eskimo transgender fireman doing an experiment and, or a, a BBC journalist doing an experiment, <laughs> if you do, this, do the um, science correctly, you should arrive at the same result. So the, the idea of science is that you free it from values, essentially. That's what an experiment is. And what, of course, is happening with Trump and the Brexiteers and so on is that everything is absolutely laden with values. There's, there's no possibility of getting a, an objective judgment about anything because it's absolutely laden with values. So, you know, Brexit whatever its failures, we won't ever know about them because the, st the way the story will be told, as it's already being told in the Daily Express and so on, is that if things are going wrong, if the pound is dropping, it's because those bloody European bureaucrats are mm -hmm. undermining the whole experiment. Or Jeremy Corbyn is, or some crypto-liberal <laughs> fifth column is, is working against the British people. You can't have a discussion any longer because everything is ideologically so heavily freighted. It's different in other countries, you know. I was talking to a friend of mine who is in the German government, and he said it's very fascinating to us Germans how you suddenly, in England, suddenly appoint somebody to be a foreign secretary who has no experience of that yeah. at all. And I said, yeah, well, so how does it work in Germany? He said, well, of course, you know, if we have a Minister of Agriculture, for example, it'll be someone who probably studied plant botany or agriculture or farming or something like that, and he'll have a staff, a large staff of very well-qualified people whose field of work that is, and he'll also be answerable to somebody who is, whose job is to coordinate what he's doing with all the other departments and what they're doing. So... They, quite contrary to Michael Gove, you know, we've had enough of the experts. Yeah. They say the experts are people who know what they're talking about. Right. That's why we like having them around. So we don't make stupid mistakes. response to the legend on the back of that card oh, okay. is. Accidental erasure. Um, it's interesting that you should pick this one because just a few days ago I had a very good instance of an accidental erasure. It wasn't really an erasure, but it was an omission. Um, I was working on something and it was one of those days where I had all sorts of interruptions all through the day, people dropping things off and these kinds of things arriving, you know, pieces of work and so on. And I was working on it, trying to work on a piece, trying to keep my mind on it. And uh, another interruption for about half an hour, and I went back into the piece and hit play, and suddenly it sounded really wonderful and clear. I thought, oh, that's a nice feeling. And I realized that just before I had gone out to deal with the last interruption, yeah. I had switched something off so that I could focus on one of the other elements. So I'd taken out one of the main elements of the thing and forgotten to switch it back on again. So 
that became the whole beginning of the piece, just with a with that big omission. Mm. So I did I didn't erase it, but um, a lot of your stuff seems to be about removing things. Yeah, it's it's nice to see how little you need to do to still make something, because mm. the whole temptation with this kind of technology is to keep adding, to keep adding and to keep processing, to keep doing more and more activity. But it's an interesting thing that you notice that as a listener, you require far less action than you do as a maker. When you're in the maker hat, you're always trying to do more, to fill the spaces, to not to leave any page unturned to screwdriver every moment of the thing because you feel that you're working harder and people will appreciate it yeah i yeah. think that's what it is you like to think you're working hard i noticed this actually years and years ago when i would make something at one speed one tape speed and then i'd switch it to half speed and listen to it and think ah oh, that's much better mm. <laughs> it's got exactly half as much activity as i put in it and it's better. Yeah. So I was alert to that idea that you have to take yourself out of the maker mode sometimes and put yourself into the listener mode, and you will make different decisions. So you would be always a guy that would generally slow things down rather than speed things up, because there's people yeah. like Prince and, and Ween, I don't know if you know the band Ween. Yeah, yeah. Um, they love to speed things up. And Frank Zappa, I guess, he was up for speeding everything up at certain points and making yeah. it sound kind of crazy and cartoonish. That's that's the problem for me. It does sound crazy and cartoonish, and I don't I don't like it so much. Then, I mean, I like hearing people playing very fast. For instance, I've been absolutely entranced recently by this drummer called Jojo Mayer. Do you know who he is? Uh, no, I don't. He's a drummer who started listening to drum and bass and that kind of computer-based music, where the rhythms are incredibly fast, yeah. impossibly fast. Square pusher and exactly. Yeah. And he learned to play them. So he plays like that, and it's fantastic to watch. It's just amazing to see someone playing like that. Yeah. In fact, I love that thing about the fact that if you do something on a computer that kind of replicates and then exceeds a human player, some human player is going to say, oh, no, I can do better than that. And so they step, up, they step above it, you know. And I had a very, very nice um, thing happen. I often tell people that the... The best concert I ever saw was this show in 1995 when I was working in Montreux with David. And coming back from the studio one evening, I heard this amazing music playing. The Montreux Festival was on. And I found my way to the concert hall and I went in. It was Michel and Ocello, mm -hmm. who I, I knew and liked before anyway. But I'd never seen her play and I'd never heard her with a big band like that. It was an amazing show, and I, it just changed all my thoughts about rhythm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, about a month ago, I found on YouTube part of that concert. I thought, wow. This the actual is, one that you'd seen. This, the very one. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm watching it, and I suddenly realized that the drummer was a young Jojo Mayer, right. who I had just discovered about three years ago doing this drum and bass stuff. But he was the drummer in that show. Yeah. So it was a very interesting circle to be completed. Mm, it's gratifying when things yeah. link up. Yes, my taste was somehow consistent over that period of time. Do you go on um, kind of surfing missions on YouTube, swinging from one 
video to the next? In the at breakfast time, I do. Uh-huh. <laughs> if the news is too depressing. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I go onto, onto YouTube. Yeah, I do. I, I, I particularly, for some reason, like drummers. I love watching good drummers and seeing what they're doing because it's to me it's it's so much something that is almost unique to our music you know to modern popular music that there is no drumming tradition anything like that in western classical music and even if you think of folk music and so on the drumming is all pretty simple mm-hmm. it's not until you get this infusion from you know africa basically via brazil or cuba or haiti or New Orleans or whatever, then you start getting all this fantastically syncopated stuff that makes modern drumming. Mm. You're not uh, a drummer yourself, are you? No, that's probably why I'm so fascinated by yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm a hopeless drummer. Do you think you can learn to be decent as a drummer or is it just something that you either have or you don't, that sense of rhythm? I, th- I think you could learn. you could learn to be decent. I don't know whether you could learn to be great. Yeah. Because one thing I notice about drummers is they never stop drumming. You know, everyone you know who's a drummer is always doing this sort of... Yes, yes, the little paradiddles everywhere. They're they're always always doing that. But then, you know, a weird, not very flashy drummer can sometimes be just the ticket. Oh, yes. Mo Tucker, obviously, stands out. Sure, yes. Um, Yes, you don't have to be... You don't have to be hyper-technical. And... In fact, a lot of the great funk drummers don't do much, but what they do is so good that it's worth it, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you've never... Have you ever accidentally wiped a lot of work? Um, yes. Or lost a drive? Yeah. Quite recently, I um, was working on a piece for most of the day, and I had a quite serious crash, and it, I thought it had all gone. So I thought, okay, I'm still in the same frame of mind. I'm just going to start again. I think I can remember what I was doing. And that's always quite difficult because I'm using often chains of processors and so on with all their separate values set. But I thought I could probably do it. And I reconstructed the piece. And uh, then I discovered that actually it hadn't crashed. It had just reappeared under a different name. I don't know how that happened. So I then had two versions of the piece, which was quite interesting, and they were incredibly close. I was very impressed by my ability to... Get back in the same place. ..to to Mm. recall the whole process. Because in the past, I've sort of argued against doing that, because I've sometimes been in studios where there was an erasure. Oh, it's terrible. If you just get into that thing of, you know, somebody saying, no, no, the guitar isn't the same. Weren't the drums a bit more... Wasn't... It's just hopeless. It can go on for days. So my usual policy if I'm working with other people is to say if something gets lost, just to say it's lost, let's go on and do something new. Don't even try to replicate it, just let's forget it. But I wondered if I could do it on my own, and I think I think one person can possibly do it uh-huh. to their own satisfaction anyway. And then there are stories about you following the oblique strategy cards to the letter, which sometimes are asking you to jettison everything you've done. If it was good, we wouldn't have... We probably wouldn't bin it. Right. But if you come up with that card that says destroy everything, and there is one of the cards that says that, mm-hmm. and you find you're incredibly reluctant to follow it, then you shouldn't follow it, you know. The, the point about the cards is not to 
boss you about exactly, but to, to make you think in a different way. Yeah. So if that, I'm sure if that card came up in that situation, you'd say, okay, well, what could we destroy? So it would be a way of thinning the thing out, really. Yeah. But the cards work quite well. I, I'm, I use them just sometimes just to refresh the direction of things because you get into creative habits. You know? Yeah, of course. You resort to the same old tricks over and over again. And just to wake yourself up, it's sometimes good to um, turn it over. I've always wondered what my response to the card accretion would be. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, what's, what, what, what would you do with accretion? I don't, I'm not I even would, sure I what would it means. Accre- I would accrete something. Uh-huh. Um, so it means to build something up by addition. Okay. Essentially, it means keep doing more of the same thing, I think. Right, that's, right. that's the way I would read it. Ah. There's another one which is sort of related to that, which is not building a wall but making a brick. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's sort of the opposite of accretion. Building a wall is, a, is an accretive process, if you like. Making a brick is sort of trying to make the fundamental unit which you can then accrete. So how do you make that unit? What's it going to be? What, what should it be? Is it, you know, is it a single beat or is it a, a rhythm or is it a loop or something like that? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of moving your vision to a level of detail that it might not have been at otherwise. Yeah. I remember when the first time I worked with Paul Simon, he said, okay, well, let's, we'll start on, you know, nine o'clock Monday or whenever it was. We'll just be getting some things set up. So if you come to the studio at 11, we'll be, be ready for you then. So I turned up at 11, and Paul was listening to this tiny little fragment of guitar that kind of went, don't, don't, play it again, please. Don't, don't, once more. Don't, don't. He says, yeah. Um, can you drop me in between the don't and the don't? So the engineer's going, don't, don't. Trying to record this tiny, tiny fragment of guitar playing that, Anyway, he carries on like this for about an hour and a half. It took a long, long time. And then he said to me, so what do you think of it so far? <laughs> and I'd heard nothing else. And I said, I said, Paul, this is like inviting someone into a great big field and you're standing there with a single house brick and you say to him, what do you think of my new house? Yeah. Make yourself comfortable. <laughs> So I wonder if he was always like that, or is that something that um, Garfunkel would have yanked him out of, do you think, back in the day? I don't know. I don't, I don't know much about the relationship between them, except I was told quite a funny story once, which was that um, one of the things they always argued about was who was louder on uh-huh. the mic, you know, so there was always a big thing with the engineer about balancing them properly. And they were apparently always arguing about, you know, no, no, he, he's louder than me, he's... You've got to take him down a bit. And so it was to do with how far you stood, you know, from the mic and so on. Yeah. There was very strict regulation. No, you've got to be six inches from the mic or three inches, whatever it was. And so they, they didn't play together for years and years and years. Then they got this comeback tour, this right. very big tour in about 2009, I think. And the story I heard was... So they finally come out, walk to the mics in the sound check. And the first thing one of them says to the other is, you're too close to the mic. (laughs) 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 And uh, in fact, Paul told me that story, I think. And he also told me that they had, as a cameo in the set, they had the Everly Brothers. Right. The Everly Brothers did five songs. My goodness. 
exactly the same story. Yeah. They were always arguing about who was being favoured on the mic. Uh-huh. You know, too loud or that engineer is always favouring you. Once you're in that relationship, it's hard to derail it, isn't it? Mm, I mean, yeah. I think, um, I think those, those paranoias last a very long time. Yeah. What's the point? 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 I don't know. What is the point? Oh my gosh, this is such a big question. So that's something I've heard you talking about before. And obviously it's a something that everybody asks themselves from mm. time to time, most yeah. creative people would. But um, what are the circumstances that lead you to ask that question and how do you resolve that situation for yourself? Well, I first started asking myself this question when I was about 17. I had a girlfriend and she had a very interesting mother. <laughs> I became very friendly with her mother. Yeah. Her mother was a sort of self-taught disciple of the um, logician Karl Popper. Karl Popper wrote some very, you know, fairly dense books about the philosophy of science, really. Anyway, I, I became friendly with the mother, and she had a sort of salon and outside Cambridge in a caravan, and some quite big scientists would hang out around there. Um, Francis Crick, Watson, and... Um, Bondi was there and various other scientists. Oh. And it was quite an interesting place for me to be at that age because it was a high level of conversation. Anyway, she liked me and liked having me around and was very nice to me and didn't object to me sleeping with her daughter, which I thought was... It's always a bonus. <laughs> ...wasn't very nice to. And one day she said to me, I've always liked you. I really don't understand why somebody with a mind like yours would want to waste it by being an artist. That's what she said. You were at art school at that point, were you? Yes. Yeah. And that really sort of stung, I thought. So ever since then... Why did that throw you off then? Why, I would have thought you would immediately dismiss that as just being a, a foible of hers. No, no, I really respected her opinion huh. about things. She was, she was a very, very intelligent woman and... I'd never really met anyone like her who who had such a an independent mind about so many things. She she was one of those people who kind of made up her whole philosophy herself, really. She'd arrived at um, her thoughts quite independently from... And she didn't come in a package. You know, most people, you hear two or three ideas from them. You sort of know what package they come from. Yeah. I'm sure I'm the same as anybody else in that I'm respect. You, you sort of, oh, yes, it probably reads that paper and he probably likes this, da-da-da-da-da. You, you can kind of get the whole thing. But with her, she was constantly surprising in that none of it fitted together in the normal way. And yet if you questioned her about it, it became consistent. You saw the consistency of it. Anyway, she, so she asked me that question and I thought about that and have continued to think about it ever since. Why do people make art? What is the reason for the existence of art? A, why do people make it? And B, why do other people want to see it? Why do we all want to have art in our lives? Mm-hmm. So, of course, this, this involved me in a set of questions about what does it mean? What does art mean? What is it? 
And I concluded finally that art is everything we don't have to do. So any area of our lives where we engage in non-functional stylization is art. That's where we're doing art. So that would include, therefore, you know, not only symphonies and Cezannes, but cake decoration and earrings and funny ways of walking and... Fancy cooking. Fancy cooking, anything, yeah, yes. Yeah. All those things where we, we start to add a creative dimension to something that we don't need to. We could just eat pretty much the same stuff every day and we could all wear Chairman Mao jackets and so on. But we don't actually. Even, even when we are told to conform, we still slightly stylize as much as we're allowed to within that. So my question is, what is, what is it doing for us that, that we do that? And also relevant that everybody else on Earth seems to do it as well. We don't know of any human cultures where that isn't the case. We don't know of people who don't do art, mm -hmm. just like we don't know of people who don't do religion. There isn't a culture without religion, and there isn't a culture without art. Religion um, you can sort of understand as being everybody wrestling with mortality. Yes, um, that's right. That, that sort of makes more sense, and, and trying to find a way of entertaining some kind of hope for the future, yeah. <laughs> thinking there is a plan to it all. Did you come to any conclusions? Yes, lots of conclusions. And I, I'm going to just talk about one of them for the moment. Uh -huh. So we all know that children learn through playing. Everybody understands that when kids are doing things like tipping liquid out of cups and playing with stones and building things and uh, singing songs and so on, we, all, we know that that's all part of their way of coming to understand the world, both physically and socially and intellectually and so on. And n nobody says, why are those children wasting their time doing that? Why don't they do something useful? You know, you know that that's what children have to do. That's, that's their way of becoming acquainted with reality. Yeah. So I came up with this idea that um, children learn through play and adults play through art. So I think what we're doing when we're making art, we're continuing that process that children do and which we're sort of told to stop doing after a certain age. You know, by the 11 plus, you're supposed to be getting serious and, and doing serious work and homework and mm -hmm. putting in the hours and sort of thing. But um, throughout their lives, adults are engaging in this kind of play that we call art. And they're either doing it vicariously by watching other people doing it going to the movies or going to galleries or they're doing it themselves by doing versions of it you know styling their hair or wearing their clothes in an interesting way or finding new ways of telling stories or whatever all of those things I think are art and I think we do it because we are our primary um, power as as beings as creatures is that we're imaginative creatures that's the only thing that humans have got over the animals, actually, the, the fact that we can imagine. We can imagine a bridge and then build it. We can imagine uh, a new kind of treatment of an illness and then implement it. We can imagine. And we have to practice imagining all the time. It, we're born with the equipment to do it, but we aren't born with the, capacity, the capability of doing it. We develop that through life and we develop it through play and through art I think mm. so this is this is one answer to the what is the point question mm.
This is an advert for Squarespace. I took one look at that website and I knew that the woman I have been living with is not my wife. I'd never been any good with computers, so when I showed the website that I had built to sell my paintings to Tom, he just refused to believe that I had made it. And he started telling people that the government had taken his wife and replaced her with an AI. But Debbie had made the website herself. After hearing an advert on a podcast, she had visited squarespace.com slash Buxton and done a free trial. They had all these professional-looking templates there, so I chose one I liked, and I started typing into it. And then I dragged in some pictures, I uploaded a video, before I knew it, I had a website. I've seen The Matrix. I know that you need big green numbers and a long leather coat to build a website. It's just not that easy. But it was that easy. And when Debbie decided she wanted to purchase her new website, she remembered the offer code from the podcast. I typed in Buxton and I saved 10%. I was jumping up and down and shouting in your face at Tom. And it was around then that he started with the conspiracy theory. Why don't you go to squarespace.com slash Buxton, Tom? And you could see how easy it is to build your own website. Because that's exactly what they want me to do. Continue. Oh, sun is nearly down now. The air is getting a little bit bitey. It is very apocalypse now over there on the horizon. <sighs> and I'm like uh, East Anglia's Colonel Kurtz, heading home to sit in my palace, uh, drip water on my bald dome. <laughs> what? That sounds... Okay. Um, so, Brian Eno. Whoa. Thank you so much to him for meeting me. And thanks to his assistant, Joe Rendell, for diary juggling. If you're listening to this, Joe, thanks for helping me arrange the meeting. Really appreciate it. Anyway, when I got back home after meeting him that first time, I wrote down some notes. And I thought I'd share with you this small section When our time is up, Brian goes to the loo. I can hear him singing loudly to himself while he's in there. Not a song I recognise. Exciting to hear that voice in full swing. He continues singing as he emerges. It's a contrast with how he's been the rest of the time. Not shy, but softly spoken and undemonstrative. He stops singing and says, Adam, look at the colours as he points to a couple of opaque Perspex light boxes, sitting one on top of the other on a table in the corner of the studio. A couple of art pieces he's been working on. The boxes are both square, with several smaller squares within. The outer and inner squares change colour very slowly, independent of each other. As Eno emerges from the loo, every part of the squares has turned the same colour, The odds against that happening are astronomical, he says delightedly. Then, turning his attention back to me, he smiles, shakes my hand, and softly clasps my shoulder. It's time for Mr. Eno's next appointment. And your next appointment with Mr. Eno is now! So join me in part two for talk about writing pop songs, insights into making the classic album My Life in the Bush of Ghosts with David Byrne 
And hear Brian's response to my sketch about him working on the album Low, the track Vasava, with David Bowie and co-producer Tony Visconti, doing more than people think on this record. Thanks to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for production support. Thanks to Matt Lamont for conversation editing. And thanks very much to Acast for hosting this podcast. They were anxious to point out that the analytics I quoted in the context of the quartermasters, i.e. the listening figures for the very end of the podcast, were solely for the Acast platform and not necessarily indicative of the listening habits of the podcasts as a whole over various other platforms. Anyway, I still think of you as the quartermasters. But thanks to Acast for their continued support of this podcast. Download their app and check out their many other excellent shows. Why don't you? There's lots of them out there. For now, take very good care, and I'll see you in part two. I love you. Bye!